Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. My name is John Bleasdale, and I'm a critic and a writer on film. Today, I'm going to be talking to Tom Schoen, whose many books include Blockbuster, How the Jaws and Jedi Generation Turned Hollywood into a Boomtown, Martin Scorsese, a retrospective, and most recently, The Nolan Variations, the movies, mysteries, and marvels of Christopher Nolan. Tom was also the film critic for The Sunday Times from 1994 to 1999, And he's written for many different publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vogue and The Guardian. Please remember, if you like the podcast, to subscribe, like, share, do whatever you can to promote us. All the help we can get will be gratefully received. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty and visit my amateurishly presented website, johnbleasdale.com for more information about the podcast and more links to my work. But before any of that, I'm delighted, truly delighted to welcome Tom as my first guest, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Great book. Yeah, really, really. And I'm I'm a huge fan of just reading film books. Oh, good. (laughs) You're the one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think for me, I grew up in um, like the 70s and 80s in the northwest of England. Cinema was like miles away. You know, books were like my entry drug to cinema because I would be reading about books. I would be sorry, I'd be reading about movies. Yeah. I I had practically no chance of seeing. So so that's what I thought. Oh, was that similar with you? I mean... uh... I don't remember having kind of too many problems with access. I mean, I do remember having to wait a long time for the movies I wanted to see, you know, because nothing would go to DVD and nothing would go to video because that wasn't around. So if you missed it, it was it, you know, like that's, that's, you know, so yeah, I, I think that's probably true. Like we could recreate, we had to recreate the experience in, in other forms, whether it be comics, I remember, yeah, or, or later books but I hadn't really thought about that that's a really good point that like and, and it could explain why kind of I mean film books are actually quite a difficult thing to crack these days and I think you've just hit the reason why which is you know uh, people have so many options don't they in terms of DVD extras and so on if they want to delve. I, I, my first ever cinema experience was Star Wars in the winter of 77 sure. and it was shown on ITV I think in 1982 is that right? God, wow. So That's it's it. like five years. So I saw it when I was five. Yeah. And then again, when I was 10, you know, I mean, yeah. that's like, you're a different person, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's um, funny. How did you start? Uh, because I, I know you were a film critic for the Sunday Times for, for a yeah. period. Was it a big step or was it a natural evolution or how did it work? Like a lot of kind of good things. I was kind of 
forced into it in a state of absolute desperation and anxiety. Like the, um, I mean, I really only turned to books because journalism turned out to be such a sort of rickety boat. I mean, it, you know, I came out to New York to work for a magazine called Talk Magazine, which was run by Tina Brown. And when that, that magazine probably folded about two years after I'd moved. And so I de definitely had the sense of jumping out of the sort of Titanic and into the sea. And in that environment that I was in at that time, it was actually made more sense for me to try and pitch a book idea than it did to sort of penetrate American journalism. I had very few contacts, uh, but I did have contacts in sort of publishing. So that's kind of what forced me to, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't had that kind of that, that capsizing moment with, um, you know, with magazines going under in the early 2000s and finding, you know, I really needed like a, a sort of lifeboat. So that was kind of really how I ended up doing the first book that I did, which is weird that it would turn out to be more a safer environment than journalism. What about in terms of you approaching film and writing? How did you how did you initially get into that even prior to, to the first book? Let me see. I mean, I kind of wrote my first film review when I was at university. I think it was a Robin Williams movie, Good Morning Vietnam. And then when I left, I started writing for like a small startup magazine that, you know, uh, called The Modern Review, which was sort of all about popular culture that uh, Julie Birchall ran. And that was had a very small, it was like a, you know, small magazine that was made for peanuts. And, uh, but it sort of happened to catch the attention of Fleet Street at that time. And, you know, editors got very interested in it. So it was a good sort of platform. And so then it was from there to the Sunday Times. And then I think I'd started reviewing movies for them in 96. I mean, it was sort of a different era then. I mean, the, the internet was barely <clears throat> up and running. I mean, it was, but I think I remember, you know, the first time that you kind of sent your copy down the internet. <laughs> There's a strange kind of dial up kind of, you know, uh, connection that you had in those days. And you had, to, you had to turn the handle together. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what I didn't really know was that the journalism at that point, I mean, it really just seemed like a very, it did seem like remarkably easy to make a living. I mean, I can remember leaving university and thinking the outside world seems like a very scary place and I'm not sure I'm going to find somewhere to employ me. And I was like pleasantly surprised by the sort of speed and ease with which it happened. And, and I sort of thought that meant that I was extremely talented. <laughs> and now, looking back, I actually realised it's not that at all. What it was, was journalism was in a state of kind of engorgement. Like it was about as big as it was ever going to be. And it was heading for the edge of a cliff. So it had lots of sort of money. You know, I remember editors were sort of driving around in kind of golf GTIs and it was, you know, but, but it was heading for the edge of the cliff because the internet was just about to sort of take out its knees. So we did, had no idea. So that's really what it was. Um, and in that, in those days, there were so many newspapers, so many Sunday newspapers that had to fill so many pages. So it was a sort of small one. It was sort of almost more difficult not to end up there than not. It was just not, it was much easier in retrospect than I realized. So, you know, that's sort of, that's how it worked. I mean, they, they it was, it was, it was, and then it was very different when the internet came along, of course, you know, sort of a, a sort of different environment and, you know, everyone's a critic and so on and so forth. So it definitely was like a kind of the last, it was like the last days of Versailles or something. <laughs> or, or the f first class cabin in uh, on the Titanic. Perhaps. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny as well, things have changed because uh, I was reading a comment that uh, it, on your website, a review of one of your books, and it was Clive James. And he said this really lovely thing. Most critics are at their best when speaking the language of derision, but shown has the precious gift of being carried away in a sensible manner <laughs> and of being celebratory without setting your teeth on edge. I'm not sure being carried away in a sensible manner sounds uh, yes. absolutely sort of paradoxical. But I love this idea that the word fan with the idea of fandom has a, feels to me like a really poisonous thing at the moment. And the idea of critic seems to have an automatic negativity. But, but like the celebrant is a is a nice idea that you can write about something positively. Is that something that you know, does that just come from your, your love of movies and, and your wish to communicate? How, how, how does that 
How are you so positive? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think it was going through the kind of capsizing Titanic situation, to tell the truth, because if you're going to write a sort of longer form book about something, it doesn't work if you're coming from a, an angle of wanting to take something down. Like a, a book I've found can only really come from a place of enthusiasm. So it was really that. It was, I mean, I, and certainly there's a kind of culture of, of writing about film for the newspapers, or at least there was in the 80s and 90s. And I think Clive James is like one of the kind of great masters of that form, which sort of encouraged, you know, uh, a sort of sharpness of wit. And you kind of read the newspaper often in order to see this kind of great critic, be it kind of Clive James or A.A. Gill, kind of sharpen his knives and take some big ego down to the size, you know, and that was the whole, that's the whole point. And it's something that newspapers encourage and it's good and we used to anyway. And, but it's not so good when it comes to writing a book. It doesn't sort of, it didn't get me any very far anyway, let's put it that way. So I think one of the things that I kind of discovered coming out to America and having journalism capsize and sort of casting around for things to kind of write about is that you just go back to your enthusiasms and for me at least the first book I wrote was kind of about the you know blockbuster summer blockbuster and so that was literally just going back to when I was seven or eight and seeing Star Wars for the first time and trying to kind of recapture that enthusiasm so it was a kind of there was an autobiographical element. There's a, there's a real sort of nostalgia about that period from a lot of people who weren't actually there at the time. But I, I mean, I, I go back to those blockbusters that you, you, uh, you mentioned in your book. I mean, Jaws and, and I mean, Jaws I saw on, tel on the television, but Star Wars and, and Ghostbusters. I remember Ghostbusters being at a screening in Barrow in Furnace that was absolutely packed and, and people were dancing. It was like, you know, <laughs> it was like somebody had told me about the Blackboard Jungle and, you know, people dancing to rock around the clock. Uh, during the, the the title sequence, it was the same sort of energy, you know, which I've I've felt precious few times since. <laughs> Not in my life generally. I mean, in a cinema. In a cinema. Yeah, I mean, it's something that those kind of early blockbusters really brought home to you was a sense of your fellow audience members, and you know, they all, the audiences got really noisy again. And I know that's kind of could sometimes be an issue for some people. American audience is very noisy, but the but yeah, like. Spielberg sort of talks about you know going past the cinema and being able to that was playing Jaws and being able to work out where they were in the movie by the sort of noise that they were making the size of the screen that they were making and the same thing with Star Wars I mean they, they I mean people just came out of that movie just jubilant you know like popcorn was going through the air and like there was this sense in which the, what what we found like in those years was like a sense of togetherness as an audience like in the 70s I was trying to remember like large crowds generally didn't really signify anything very good. Like if you were in a large crowd in the 70s, it probably meant you were either unemployed and in a queue <laughs> to get unemployment benefit, or maybe you were protesting the Vietnam War, or, or you were, you know, it, it, it generally, we didn't come together for kind of good things. We came together for kind of bad re But then suddenly we could all come together and kind of watch these movies en masse. And there was a sort of real thrill of like being part of a, a jubilant, mass i'm sure you know sort of football has the same sort of thing you know but it's like but again you know with football i mean i think that kind of turned that there was a that turned a corner too didn't it where the sort of the violence dropped away during the same period so yeah it was definitely there was a and i think that's the thing that you know i definitely have missed i mean i you know it's like uh that's the i i still love sort of you know it's definitely a really exciting thing to be part of an audience all those guys too all those people that make those films like Nolan and Spielberg and they all sort of love, like to sneak into the cinema and see how they're going down and I can totally understand that because the, the temperature inside a movie theatre where their film is playing is a really interesting it's a really interesting thing absolutely why why wouldn't you why 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 wouldn't you do yeah. that if, unless unless you've made a, a complete turkey <laughs> yeah I know yeah exactly and you can kind of go and find out things about your film because I think when a film like meets its audience it changes slightly like it becomes a different creature and things about it are revealed, you know, like the famous example being, they didn't know that you're, we're gonna need, um, you're gonna need a bigger boat was a big laugh line. And they didn't realize that was a joke until it met the audience. And then suddenly they laughed to relieve the tension of the previous scene. And then boom, they had a, 
uh, a moment. So they, and it's funny, like how many of those films, like I'll be back as well in the Terminator movies, they didn't know that was going to be a big um, line. And then it met the audience and the audience made it a line, you know? So there's this definitely kind of interactive quality with the audiences and those big movies. Um, they kind of make them different films sometimes. Yeah, ab- no, absolutely. I, uh, there's so many films as well that I've gone to see completely cold and and the energy of 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 the dawning realization as you're in the movie theater hang on a minute i'm what this is a masterpiece i'm watching a masterpiece right now (laughs) i mean you uh you sort of went after blockbusters you went and and sort of started choosing people to sort of do retrospectives on and do sort of single filmmaker studies how did you was it was that just were those like commercial considerations this will sell or or was it were are these the names of your sort of pantheon of filmmakers? Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to remember, actually. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, one of the things that happened in publishing, film publishing sort of changed a little, and those coffee table books, I remember in the sort of first decade or second decade, they began to become slightly more... they, they, the more interesting things I can remember where they, when they were kind of looked down on a little because it was mostly sort of pictures and the text that went with them was often very um, you know adulatory and there's a difference you know between you can celebrate but 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 I think there was something a little bit you know where I can remember when I sort of read them they were just a little too sort of hagiographic you know they were it was like it was like all the kind of bad you know the the bad movies a, a, a film director had made were kind of you could barely tell from reading these things you know it was just mm. all about the kind of the awards that they collected and you're like oh okay so but then I think that started to change and I honestly I, th- I think that the 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 one that caught my eye was the Wes Anderson book by um I never know how to pronounce his name but Matt Zeitz, who's this kind of very good American critic and he really went pulled out all the stops on that Wes Anderson book. I mean, he had the collaboration of Anderson, which helped, but it looked great, but the text was also great. And so they suddenly became a little bit more attractive to do. And as sort of people tried to work out what kind of books people wanted to read, they became a more attractive option. So so in those cases, but in those cases, you're often, because they're so picture heavy, you're definitely heading, you're heading for the kind of the real, you know, household names. That's the, maybe the one limiting thing about that bit of the market is because they're uh, they're expensive to produce you know you're ba- you really are kind of looking at kind of you know Woody Allen and Clint Eastwood and all the kind of those those sort of big names and so maybe that's the sort of the you know the sort of limitation a little bit is kind of you know would they want to do Fincher I mean you would hope that they will want to do someone like Fincher but I can imagine that also being a kind of you know weirdly a bit of an uphill you know struggle you know pitching that because I th- the things that I, I think as a genre, they really like the actor directors because then you've got the kind of the fame of the acting career too. But, you know, but yeah, I mean, obviously Scorsese and, you know, and Tarantino, they're sort of big auteur brand names. So that work, they works for them too. When you when you choose a filmmaker like that, does it change the way you, you look at them after you've written the book? I mean, do, you must be watching the films multiple times with a sort of intensity that might be, uh, you might not have, have done in the past. Has it changed your view of any of those filmmakers in a way that, um, you know, drastically or? Yeah, I mean, not sort of, I wouldn't say sort of drastically, but that's such a good question. I mean, I sort of think, I would say that the book that happened on was this, the book I did about Scorsese. And it wasn't like I had a any great sort of Damascan flash, but... I mean, you do get very kind of keyed to the sort of sequence of careers and the sort of story of careers. And so you do have like, that kind of gives you some insight. And it became apparent to me when I sort of did the Scorsese book that the story of like his 70s, his career in the 70s, which is basically he goes out to work for the studios in the early 70s, rides this kind of extraordinary wave of sort of success, critical success and, and awards and so on. And then as that era begins to kind of crash and burn at the end, so does he with New York, New York, and he moves back to New York at the end of that period. I think it was like just before he made uh, Raging Bull. And it hadn't occurred to me like just how important a kind of almost a physiological act, that thing that was in kind of Scorsese's career, like the experience of being 
of riding high and then gradually it's sort of slipping away and then this kind of you know cataclysmic kind of coming down to earth and it sort of as I looked again and again at that story I was like oh that's Goodfellas that's the story of Goodfellas that's what he that's you know that's the story he was telling when he made when he came to make Goodfellas you know oh my god we had it good and boy did we blow it like that's the you know and I was like and then you say oh okay so that's that was kind of burned into his psyche you know like that 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 experience of success and then crumbling like that you know marked him and it gave him a subject and so that was interesting like kind of figuring out that like when he was making Goodfellas he was more or less kind of telling us the story of his 70s you know like complete with Rolling Stones uh, soundtrack and you know Rolling Stones are not a kind of necessarily all that listened to by the by the by the mafia but they were by him yeah. in, you know when he was in Hollywood so you know it was that so that was that kind of stuff kind of comes out when you look at the sort of sequence of the careers I mean I sort of I did later sort of test this theory on him and he, he was to, you know he he uh he he sort of he did, did there was something there he did he, you know he didn't kind of go absolutely that's what I was explicitly doing but he it, you know that he was like oh yeah maybe maybe and that sort of, you know, in a sense, sort of becomes uh, there's a, there's a bit of that DNA in almost all of those later films as well. I mean, the Aviator and the, you know, yeah. um, I mean, what I loved about that book is that you read. Well, I don't know if you rescue might be too dramatic a word, but you you appreciated Color of Money, and that's one of my favorite Scorsese movies. I just think that film is so underrated. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If that if that movie if that movie had had the money to have a Rolling Stones soundtrack to buy, it would I think be remembered a little bit differently. And I, that's not just to knock the soundtrack it has, uh, which is great. But I kind of feel like that's the one thing missing from that film that, that would lift it into the uh, a different zone because it's otherwise I think perfect. Like there's that's the film where he really did manage to kind of completely. After the kind of crash, you know, when you look at Color of Money, you're seeing somebody who has completely reconstituted themselves. It's like the bionic man, you know, we can rebuild him. And he's totally learned how to make a low budget movie uh, independently. And, and it, you know, it's amazing. Those movies that he made in the 80s are almost like the template for like what the independent film movement would do. And you look at the color of money and think, oh, that's exactly the template that Darren Aronofsky would use later on when he would get like, you know, Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. You know, you find a, an, old, an older star, you kind of build a kind of character piece sort of around that star um, and you kind of finance the movie that way, but you keep, you know, the cost low. That's exactly what so many independent filmmakers did. And I think like, you know, Scorsese in the 80s was basically laying out all these kind of these these clues to like the what the indies would do. Like if you look at like what's it after hours and you think, oh, that's like a, that's the Coens. That's the Coens. He's making yeah. a Coens movie they, and they would take that template uh, and, and, and not consciously, but that he, he, so that's what kind of it definitely the, the 80s in a weird kind of way. People don't look at the Scorsese's 80s as being this kind of great glorious time, but in many ways, it sort of shows you what what a great director he is because he, he you know, he's absolutely at his at his sort of most desperate stretch in that period where he's trying to kind of keep his keep a grip on the filmmaking career, he's trying to stay in the game, and he's really kind of rebuilding from scratch. And it's like so fascinating that he kind of came out so strong. Um, I mean, amazing, really. Yeah, he's such a he's it's such a roller coaster of a career that and. Um... The other, there was something that you wrote that I, I also appreciated. I was, I've always thought Casino was the better film to Goodfellas. And I was reading your book yesterday as to prepare for the interview. And your argument about Casino, it struck me. I don't think you put it quite like this, but this is what sort of came into my head was, ah, the reason I think Casino is a better film is because I enjoy Goodfellas more. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and whereas Casino, I feel, I feel like drained at the end of it and, and sort of hollowed out. And so the Catholic in me, thinks, uh, uh, that must be a better experience. That must be a more moral experience. You know? <laughs> that's such an interesting reaction. I mean, that's, a, that's all of us have felt that to some degree or another. Like I'm enjoying this film too much for it to be a classic. Yeah. You know, I definitely, yeah. I mean, I think, Goodfellas is definitely his sort of most 
enjoyable film and it's sort of it's I mean the thing that differentiates for me like Goodfellas and Casino is the the element of the boyhood you know and the fact that he kind of goes there's a sort of the, the warmth in it and it, I'm not saying this is better or worse but the the warmth of um, of Goodfellas and the, the with which he views as a boy those characters and you know that's very much like Scorsese's own sort of admiration for those neighborhood hoodlums that he kind of looked up to and you know like it's there's a there's an element of autobiography in it a slim slim one about his boyhood anyway that kind of warms that film up and it's sort of and you sort of almost forget that like it's probably as a result I mean it is a sort of form of fantasy there is a sort of fantasy in there and the fantasy is because he was an as a sort of weakly asthmatic kid who wasn't really at all tough I mean on the street and there's this sort of dream of kind of being accepted by much more violent men and accepted into their ranks and I think it's one that obviously a lot of people myself included share (laughs) it's like a that's the sort of fantasy that's being sold in Goodfellas and that's maybe why it's his most I mean people really love Goodfellas for that reason I mean I mean Casino I think is cold it's a kind of colder film and um, I mean listen it's technically fantastic I mean I can see he's really I, I I sort of felt you know each time he remakes that film and he's sort of remade it several times now in a way Wolf of Wall Street being the most recent I sort of feel like with each time he 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 almost gets better at making that film but maybe with less urgent reason for being like it doesn't sort of feel as a, a you know sort of great films can can really just feel plucked into existence they had to exist you know yeah and the, and then the weaker ones feel that they were sort of pushed into existence and they were made to exist you know and you know but then I also love Wolf of Wall Street so I'm not saying it's not you know it doesn't have a reason for being but he I also think- gets more and more amoral as it goes on like they get he gets the cackle gets louder and louder you know <laughs> um, yeah, I mean in a way, I think that's a great argument for, for looking at him as a retrospective, looking at him as a whole filmmaker, because I, I wonder what Casino would be like if Goodfellas just didn't exist. It's almost, the, the two almost have to go together. Otherwise, you're, you're right that it's just so cold and, and, and horrific. Yeah, I mean, I often play that game a little differently. And I sometimes think like, you know, when I often think when when directors go off, and I don't, I'm not including Scorsese in this, but when they kind of lose whatever it is they had at the beginning of their career, I often think, what would happen if this were their first movie? Like, so I remember, I remember when I I wasn't as, as sold on Kill Bill as some people were, and I can remember thinking, I wonder what would happen if this were his first film, not Reservoir Dogs. Would it? Would Tarantino be as revered as he as he is today, or? What about Inglorious Bastards? Maybe that's a better one to use. If Inglorious Bastards were his first film, what would we be saying about this guy? You know, like, and I do think that there's this element of like when they first, there's a reason why those first films are often like, in a way, like the really, you know, the really perfect ones. I'm not saying that they don't produce masterpieces later on, but, and it's because they haven't won us over yet. And they're sort of like this sort of very ardent suitor, you know, they're trying to seduce the audience and they're sort of, putting every effort into it and like they're just fantastic Romeos and then and then later on they have us and then they we fall into the relationship falls into neglect and they become a little lazier and they don't care for us so much and <laughs> like no some, more breakfast in bed for you yeah <laughs> it's something like that a little bit you know like and they, they begin to take us for granted and you know and I, I I you don't treat me the way you used to and you kind of get into these conversations but there's an element of that I think there's nothing like a, a young director who's trying to prove himself for the audience for the first time like there's they're kind of on fire you know i i had a i had a a bit of a falling out with with tarantino i mean i always liked his later stuff but i didn't love it the way i loved reservoir dogs i loved pulp fiction Mm. i liked and admired jackie brown but i always feel it's a little bit the i i I don't quite trust people who say they love it as much as as that because it it doesn't have that appeal to me it feels like Feels like an Elmore Leonard novel, to tell you the truth. And those ones that you just mentioned, Jang, um, not Django, Unglorious Bastards and Kill Bill, they always felt to me like they were like essays on, they were like pastiche mm. essays on on a better movie, perhaps, you know? Yeah. I mean, um, I don't think it's sort of, it, it's not really spoken about enough just how much he, 
he was doing something very, very different in those films. Like in the first films that he made, what he was doing was dropping some kind of very movieish situation, like a heist or an overdose or whatever it was. He was kind of dropping that into the laps of characters who were just like everyday, you know, sort of dope smoking, video watching kind of slobs and watching how they would react and making sure that their reaction uh, was as realistic as possible. He was basically taking a movie situation and dropping it into the the laps of his fellow video clerks, you know, and sort of mm-hmm. seeing like, how would they react? And I sort of think so. And and there was this amazing clash between the movieishness of the idea and then the realism of the reaction, which is often to do with the way they spoke. And he managed to get the way that people spoke absolutely perfect. Like his grasp of kind of street slang and idiom was where the realism sort of came from, you know. And I thought, and with Kill Bill on, he changed his mo. Totally, he was playing a very different game. He was no longer trying to take movieish kind of plot situations and dropping them into the lap of kind of like the guy next to you in the cinema. He was taking movie situations. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And sort of dealing with them in a kind of movie-ish way. We were totally in the movie universe. Like there was no attempt to kind of anchor it or get comedy from contrasting it with the, the sort of the slang of everyday life. And you noticed, I really noticed it in the way that everybody suddenly started speaking in this extremely ornate way. They Everybody suddenly sounds like a fop, an 18th century fop, like discoursing for like four paragraphs, uh, you know, and you're like, wow, what happened to the, to the guy that was writing such sort of street smart dialogue? It's, he's just gone, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I felt a great disappointment with almost all of them from Kill Bill on. I mean, I've, I know some people are totally not, don't hear it that way. But I just see him as just doing a different thing. It's not like he's not as good at the game. It's more like he's just playing a different game. It's not. It's not even. I think there's a line in Pulp Fiction. It's not even the same ballpark. It's not the same sport. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, you know, the, 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 he's just. It's a different sport. Um, so that, that's my kind of. That was the. That was my disappointment with his um, career. And here and there, he kind of gets it back. There are little moments of Django. There are little moments of. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where something of the old, you know, heat sort of comes back into his writing. Yeah. But yeah, it's not, yeah, I'm afraid that I do see the early ones as, as the, the be- very much the best ones. I mean, I, I think that kind of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs are, are so head and shoulders above everything else that, like, it's not even it's not even funny. Like, they're just, he, he hasn't, unfortunately, kind of ma- matched those. Yeah, it's almost like uh, directors sometimes need the anti- I remember a friend of mine, tell, I, will, I don't claim credit for this idea, but a friend of mine telling me that Wes Anderson always needs an anti-Wes Anderson inside his uh-huh. movie for it uh-huh. to be any good. So, uh-huh. you know, the reason Royal Tenenbaums is great is Gene Hackman is not yeah. Wes Anderson. He's the kind of guy who would slap Wes Anderson. And <laughs> Rushmore, it's Bill Murray. But when right. you get to Life Aquatic of Steve Zissou and when you get to the Darjeeling Limited, there's no anti-Wes Anderson. It's like everybody's a version of Wes Anderson. That's very funny. I mean, he was actually, ter- I, I, there's a story, there's great stories about like him being terrified of Gene Hackman on the set and having to have Bill Murray act as like a, uh, an intermediary, you know, because he didn't, he was so frightened of him. But I think that's very true. I think, you know, like the great, and it's, 
you know, directors at the beginning of their career have to tolerate large amounts of opposition and collaboration with people who aren't exactly like them. And, you know, and then as their career, the more successful they get, the less they have to do that, which is, you know, it's the unfortunate thing. And so some of the resistance and the friction goes out. I think that's true of all in every department, not just necessarily in the actors and the casting, but sort of, you know, the finance people and, you know, everything gets a little bit easier and they, they, it's harder to find that, uh, you know, that, 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 that sense of kind of having to go out and persuade and, I mean, it, it helps maybe if you're a little bit self-destructive, like Scorsese, because then you really do have to go out and recreate the whole thing over and over again. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, that's actually in many ways like a great career move is to sort of just fail big time, you know, uh, and then have to kind of come back from that. I mean, I, I, uh, all of them, all of the, the big ones have got like something like that, some big film where they sort of stub their toe and they come down and then they have to rebuild and, and often it's the, their best films then proceed, you know, like I always think of Spielberg and like after 1941 and, and then he comes out with Raiders and E.T. and they're, they're direct results of having kind of blown it so big on 1941. Which is such a weird film. I, mean, I rewatched that recently and it's, it's the, I mean, I think he said himself, I should have just made a musical. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's just not got the songs. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's very, of course, like all these things, they're, they're great to go back to and find. I mean, it's beautiful. It's very intricate. And some of the, the, the numbers are fantastic. Sequences are fantastic. And so much ingenuity in it. I mean, but Spielberg is definitely one of those guys who has like a zillion ideas in every kind of meeting. And and not every one of them is great. You know, like it's it's all of these, you know, they, sometimes they're lunatic, you know, and they, they need people to keep them in check. And I think he had there, it was Zemeckis, wasn't it? And Bob Gale and John Melius. And they're all sort of, <laughs> they're cut from the same cloth. They're all egging each other on, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I definitely, I totally agree. Like movies have to have like a, a spanner in the works, you know, sometimes to really, really work. I mean, I always think of like Apocalypse Now and the way that like John Milius really kind of screws with the overall scheme because he's so pro-war and like Coppola thought he was making this anti-war movie and John Milius who kind of wrote the script was like totally for Vietnam he thought it was a great idea and so as a consequence you get these kind of amazing sequences of these clashes you get the sort of bombing sequence followed by Duval sort of inhaling the napalm and saying how great it is you know now that's what people remember and so you're right it's totally you have to have the anti coppola in there to make a kind of great you know great film do you think that uh i mean going on moving on to your uh, latest book the christopher nolan the nolan variations and how you didn't call it the nolan twisters is beyond me i assume that title was already taken <laughs> yeah no i sort of went for variations in the end because of the the um the enigma variations and how much he you know liked the Elgar and used it in Dunkirk. And then I was, it got me because Elgar was a kind of big cryptologist. Like he loved kind of mysteries and sort of enigmas and sort of puzzles, just like Nolan did. And I sort of does. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I went in the end. <laughs> but, but now you're regretting the Nolan twisters, aren't you? You're, you're thinking. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that should have been it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, tell you the truth, one of the things I loved about that book and this is my last compliment because I don't want to come over too celebratory either, but um, I th- there was so much- In a sensible so manner. <laughs> in a sensible manner. I don't want to get carried away in a sensible <laughs> manner. <laughs> um, I, uh, it, there was so much in the book which I, I would stop and put the book down and just think about, because, which was beyond the movies, which were things like the, um, the left or right. How do you describe left or right to somebody <laughs> without- you know, referring to, you know, just, you know, you can say up and down, front and back, but you can't say left Over and right. the phone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, some of those ideas were, were extraordinary. And I love, it was sort of became much more of a conversation, I felt, uh, that book. You, you were, there was quite a lot of back and forth. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad because definitely that was the, you know, the sort of challenge with that book was to, you know, I was only going to be talking to him. So the rules of the book were no collaborators, no secondary interviews, just him, you know, but I didn't want it to be kind of Q, exactly Q&A, um, you know, like kind of just transcription of the conversation. 
um, and he didn't want it to be a biography. So it had to sort of find its way in the middle and work out what it was. And I was greatly helped by the fact that he kind of kept on challenging me with these, you know, puzzles. Um, or I don't even really thought of them as challenging me, but he would say these things and they had this kind of, he's got this very uh, sort of semi-scientific cast of mind. Like he likes testing things. He likes experiments and things. And so he would sort of say these, th these very broad generalities. And I just like you, I kind of came away from the conversation thinking, is that true? You know? So he would sort of say, yeah, you can't describe left and right down the phone to someone now. And I was like, oh, hang on, you've got to be able to do that. So I kind of, I, I they and I and then I sort of would come back with an, an answer as I thought would work and then he would sort of throw it out so then it became a little bit like kind of going to the headmaster or something you go with him with the answer to the test and then he would sort of mark the test and then you know so there was a kind of quality there was an interaction between us and the reason I kept them in is because I thought well doesn't that really resemble the way that he deals with his audience too because you know he sets the puzzle and then the audience are like try to sort of outwit him a little, you know, um, and it's like, oh, no, 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 but he hasn't, he's got the twist, you know, ah, but he didn't see the twist. So there's this constant game of chess going on between the audience and him. And so because the com my conversations with him sort of seem to play out in that way, I kind of thought, well, I'll keep them in then because I'll put that in because that'll get the flavor of the films a little bit. Otherwise I probably wouldn't have done it because it might have seemed a little bit sort of weird and self-indulgent, but, but, you know, yeah, like it, it, it definitely felt like you were kind of, like I was living a Nolan film and I thought, like, oh, okay, that's, that's the way to do that's That's good to put in then. But yeah, he was very competitive too. I would sort of come up with things and I would say, I mean, I thought I'd solved it at least three times and he would say, no, 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 because of X. And I would go, and I, <laughs> and I, I really thought that in some instances that the test kept on changing, you know, like I would, I thought I had solved it. And then he would say, yeah, but you didn't do it with, by doing, and also do this. And then I thought, well, you're changing the, test a little bit okay but okay all right I'll try and solve it again and um you know and then at the end I think I really think I I thought I had and then solved it and then literally the last time almost that we met he's he he's as I was heading out the door literally as I was heading out the door he said oh about that solution and then he just demolished the my answer and I literally did. I looked at him and I thought, you, I hate you right now because this, you've totally, like, how much do you want to win this? <laughs> because I, 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 I really thought I'd solved it. I was very resentful at him for like kind of demolishing the answer. And like, but it was, but it, but that was why, again, I kind of kept it in. I was like, well, isn't that kind of, that's just a good ending for the book, you know, because, um, like that's often how the films end too, you know, with just coming out the cinema, just kind of going, God, what, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's the perfect filmmaker for the sort of like before dinner movie, because you can spend the rest of the evening, you know, picking over the, the movie. What, I mean, in relationship to what we were saying earlier about people like Martin, uh, not Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino and people getting, maybe not having, uh, the, the amount of resistance that they need to create truly great stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, an, another one I, I would throw into the ring here would be maybe Ter Terence Malick, you know, whose mm -hmm. films get progressively worse the more editors he has. Um, you know, mm. he starts off with one editor, then there's two, and then by the time <laughs> his, his recent films are, are like three or four editors, it, it, what about him? Because I mean, he, he uh, Nolan doesn't really have a spanner in the works. It, he can kind of maybe is Tenet his his moment where he's going to have to back off mm. and rethink. Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, it, when we were talking about Tenet, you know, the, the immediate comparison piece for me was Inception because uh, and but here's the difference: is that Inception took him genuinely 20 years to write like he first came up with that story at school and then he kind of rewrote it at various points through his career and tinkered and tinkered and tinkered and then finally kind of got it greenlit but even then Leonardo DiCaprio had kind of prob problems with it and he want he wanted something a little bit more emotional about the character in it and he pushed uh Nolan to 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 rewrite as he was scouting for locations for the film um so as they're sort of trundling towards production beginning he's still rewriting the film 
And there, DiCaprio is the spanner in the works because he's saying, uh, this film is too complicated and I need my character to have more of an emotional stake in it. So at his behest, that's why Inception becomes the film it does. With Tenet, I don't think that happened. I don't think that there was, it wasn't, certainly wasn't so long in the, the writing of it. And I don't think there was any pushback from sort of the actors. I don't think any of them would have really, I, it was a different relationship as I understand it the, than the DiCaprio one. And as to whether he's going to have a rethink, I would actually imagine that yes. I mean, as much as when you talk to him about it, you know, he will say, you know, he'll defend his film, right? And he, you know, uh, he won't really give an inch. He never admits mistakes and he doesn't, he's not going to start now. And, uh, but I also know that, you know, he listens to the audience, uh, listens to audiences and is too much of a kind of an appreciator of kind of mass entertainment not to take seriously that a lot of people were kind of very confused by that film. And I think my guess is that yes, there'll there'll be a there'll be a re there'll be a readjustment. That's my that's my kind of just feeling sort of on what I don't know him very well, but I'm that's I'm the sense that I would get. But it's curious, isn't it, as to whether it's exactly his Waterloo moment or not, because it was a it because it came out during this very strange year, and it's you know the. And the box office is so hard in this particular instance to interpret because it did fantastically well in some areas like the UK, but in the in America it did not do well. So the whole question of like judging whether that film was a hit or whether it was not is really an imponderable mystery. And I don't think we'll ever really know. We'll never really be able to say this film was accepted by audiences or it was not because of the weirdness of the year in which it was released. So in that sense, he sort of dodged a bullet. I mean, I don't think in that sense, it won't be as kind of a, as much of a kind of revealing, you know, reaction as it might've been. But yeah, but I think I, but I have to think that like, you know, he was hearing it from a lot of people that it was confusing. Yeah, I, I guess I, I see what you mean by dodge the bullet in the sense that, you know, there's just so many other factors at play. It, it's hard, but yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big um, uh, celebrant I won't say fan mm. of Nolan. I like him. A, I like him a lot. I love the Prestige. Mm. I think that's probably one of mm. uh, my favorites of his movies. And there is a sort of temptation, looking at the more grandiose movies he's made recently, to sort of, you know, want him to go back and do one of the early funny ones. You know, um, totally. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think like the Prestige is the model too. There's too much action, I think, in some of them. Um, I think rather action cinema which is a sort of um, a very, that's the Hollywood genre. You know, that's the thing that he learnt. And from, from Insomnia, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, or well, you can see him mastering sort of all the elements of the kind of, you know, the Hollywood sort of toolkit, as it were. But I think there's too much action in Tenet, to be honest. I, I could easily see that as a smaller film, and maybe it should have been a smaller film and more intimate sense of sort of betrayal and and so on. But it... it you know, uh, but I agree. I think that the, the um, uh, I think that the things need to be scaled down a little. And I think the prestige is definitely the model. You know, it's an extraordinary, it's such a great film. And it's so, they labored on that screenplay. It's like a kind of, it's beautiful. It's such a, it's such a great art, art object. You know, like it's like a, it's a craft, piece of craftsmanship, that screenplay. I mean, and, I've watched uh, that film a hundred times. Well, not a hundred times, that's, that's ridiculous. But I've watched the film probably in the double figures and I watched it last week recently and I it was the first time I realized that Hugh Jackman's character was English and that his American right. him acting American was uh, was the whole that was his act so when they go and see the Chinaman and they say him pretending to be that's the, the this is where the trick happens Hugh Jackman oh. looks like he's the naive one saying, no, nobody could do that. But he's been doing it all along anyway because he is Lord so-and-so and has right. always been Lord that's so-and-so. Interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. And that's the first time I re realised it. And I've seen it hundreds of times. Yeah. And, and when he goes to America, Christian Bale writes in his, uh, di his the diary he's given him, you know, maybe you'll stay in America, maybe you'll stay in your homeland. 
so it's actually not a bad strategy. You've got him out of England. Why bother coming back to England? You've got nothing. But of mm. course, it's not his homeland. His homeland is England. So mm. it just has, it's just got these tendrils that go everywhere. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't sort of you picked up on something. I hadn't kind of considered that, you know, you've got the England, America contrast and clash that was in fact so much a kind of part of his kind of growing up. And I hadn't sort of thought about it in those terms, but it's there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it shows you that there's, you know, when those films really work, there's just layers and layers and layers to them, you know, and that's the thing that I definitely respond to in his work is the sense in which, yeah, you're you're entering into a world and that world is sort of defined really by just the sort of end, the feeling that these layers go on forever, you know, that you can't reach the body. It's, you know, like the, it's the, at the end of the Truman show, he bumps up against the edge of his world. You know, you definitely don't get that in a Nolan film when they're working. You always feel like that world is just kind of infinite and mm. That's the sort of thrill of them. You know, they're sort of these magic boxes, you know, like you, they, they, they last a certain amount of time. They're contained in sort of time and space, but like, yeah, but you, you enter into them and you kind of feel that like you could spend your entire life in it, whereas some people do, you know, they, they, they love them so much. I mean, they're def but it's definitely born of the quality, I mean, his obsession. Like he's, people get obsessed about his films because he's, he's obsessed with them. Like, you know, the, the, there's definitely a, a self-fulfilling kind of quality sometimes the audience sort of if a film is loved by its creator you know it'll be loved by the audience if it's kind of you know if it's obsessed about it'll be obsessed about by the audience and sort of it's definitely true with him and that honestly I can honestly say that like the real the the thrill of that book was that I never did kind of get to the edge of the world like Truman in his boat like I I was a little bit frightened that I would and that I would sort of spend so much time thinking about these films and writing about them that I would sort of just figure out how they work and then all the magic would not be there but I honestly was sort of still finding sort of layers to them that and I think that sort of speaks just to the amount of time he's put into them you know no matter how much sort of time I sort of spent watching them he'd spent more time making them um, thinking about them so you know it's sort of like are you but you constantly think you can it's a, it's a game of chess. You constantly think you kind of you can get a beat him at it, and then it's like, nope, he put in more time. You know. Yeah, he'll go back and he'll go back and use some yeah and read read up until until the early hours to to find some stratagem. Um, yeah. What, what's what's your next project then? What have you got something already outlined or uh, that you can tell us about? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of right at the moment. I'm sort of uh, working on something. It hasn't, I haven't yet. It's with another filmmaker, and I, I, I probably shouldn't say anything yet because it hasn't yet been um, signed anything. But it's another British filmmaker, and and I'm sort of excited to be doing it. And it's kind of yeah, it's it's. I, I definitely like kind of the the collaboration sort of process because I mean. I mean, it's the one thing you definitely forget is that they they generally are pretty good at collaborating. I mean, the you know most directors are control freaks, obviously, because that's the goes with the territory. But they also like to they have to kind of collaborate. And so, uh, I, you know, and Nolan, who you, many people have as this kind of Kubrickian sort of chilly, you know, co controlling sort of mind, you know, and and but he too was really good and helpful collaborator who you know helps open things up rather than sort of shut things down so you know and he would give great notes uh, you know on things I kind of so yeah that's that's basically I just want to kind of the the so working now um with somebody else and it's sort of uh, again it's just it's really exciting to sort of have that back and forth yeah no I mean just the thing it reminds me is that they're all kind of film goers you know first <laughs> they all start off as film goers and are not on that that playing field we're all equal you know so the thing that it's exciting to me is sort of finding out what films they what that kind of had the same effect on them that you know maybe theirs had on me just remembering that kind of filmmakers are sort of also film fans is like a kind of cr crucial bit of the whole the whole equation yeah absolutely I, I, I always think that that there's not really that barricade. It's actually far more porous. And I, when you read someone like Paul Schrader writing about movies, you sort of think, oh, okay, yeah, 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 you know, it's absolutely. Um, which leads me on yeah. to 
to sort of my last question, which uh, is a question I'm thinking of asking everybody, which is if you had to sort of like recommend one movie book, one book about movies to, to someone who hasn't read any or, 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 or whatever, what would be a book that you would, you would think, oh, this is, this is one you'd really have to read? Hitchcock Truffaut, I think. So the sort of book of interviews that Francois Truffaut did with Hitchcock just before he made The Birds, I think it was. It was sort of in the 60s. And, you know, uh, I bought that. I mean, and I just read it till it was hanging off its hinges, you know, like it was just sort of like I read it to pieces. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that book is so doggy, it? you know. Um, you still have and- the same copy. Yeah, I do. And it's, uh, but it's like, um, I mean, everybody who's picked it up knows, you know, just how amazingly easy it is to read because it's it's delightfully, again, that is Q&A. But because Truffaut is who he is, it sort of totally works because they're sort of equals. And, um, and then, you know, and just in terms of like, it just covers so much ground and, you know, you've got the great pictures and all the themes are there. And, uh, and, and also you get like, this kind of nice contrast of personalities with with sort of Truffaut representing the kind of those sharp young critics from France who were sort of trying to elevate the art form and see it as art. And then you've got Hitchcock, who's kind of much more anti-intellectual and sort of treating the movies as this sort of big box of tricks where you get to play on people, you know. And so he's much more kind of like trying to explain the trick or the engine or the, the device, you know, and, and Truffaut's sort of a little bit more wanting to kind of dive into the, the theme and the, the psychoanalytic undergrowth. And it's a, it's a nice, they, they, they don't persuade each other, but they, but they have a great sort of dialogue. And it's funny, I mean, it's def- there's definitely elements of that. I think almost any time any critic or film writer comes into contact with a filmmaker is you're often sort of asking them to become self-conscious about something that they weren't conscious about when they made it or they were made it in the heat of the moment and they weren't sort of thinking too hard maybe and so all this stuff found its way into the film but they had they don't know you know so the critic comes along and says ah well you know but what about this theme and they can honestly be quite surprised and it's who's right I mean there's no right in it in it you know like you know the filmmaker is off can often be like a uh, a little bit surprised and they'll want to sort of bring the kind of more intellectual take down to earth or or dismiss it entirely but the truth is that maybe they're not the best judge of like kind of what went into it you know and sometimes it takes somebody from the outside to kind of come along and say you know this found its way in because their job in the moment was to get the thing finished you know their job was not to sort of analyze the theme of it so yeah it's an ongoing sort of sort of dance really between the kind of critic and the director and I I think that's why I love that book it really just mm. sort of sets up I've, I've had that dynamic I've experienced that dynamic so many different times in different ways you know like it really is just the it's just the the, the high watermark have you have you ever had a, a big disagreement with a filmmaker that you were interviewing or collaborating with uh I mean, I definitely had, you know, there were moments with Nolan, like he definitely resisted his the, any uh, biographical reading of his films, uh, you know, at all. It's very uncomfortable. He did not like doing that at all. And um, so I had a, I had a, my work cut out for me because I did see some parallels and themes that were kind of crossing over. And uh, I, I won't say it sort of, it wasn't sort of so much an open disagreement, although sometimes he would say that's, you know, I don't think that's right, but it was sort of, yeah. I, I, I mean, it was it was like trying to give a cat a bath. <laughs> it really did. It really didn't want to go there. And uh, but you know, but we ended up persuading each other very slightly of the other person's you know point of view. Like he did end up persuading me that you know to some degree, if you look at them biographically, autobiographically, like something is diminished. Um, and I, I I can see that. I definitely you know there's a there's a tendency to kind of play a kind of Freudian game of kind of gotcha, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, but does, but is the film enhanced? Is the film enhanced? So I sort of definitely came around to that. And he also then came around to seeing that there were elements in his films that he hadn't really thought about that had come from his sort of upbringing, you know, which he was kind of gracious enough to, to you know, concede. Uh, but he would never tell me which ones they were. <laughs> he didn't want to give me that satisfaction, he said. 
<laughs> the ultimate puzzle you have to you have to work yeah, it out yourself i know yeah and he's right you know because it definitely made the book more you know for me at least it made it more interesting because it meant that he, i never got the satisfaction of thinking oh okay i kind of um got you know got him and tied tied him up with a big string you know mm. um well yeah. listen tom it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you uh thanks very much for joining us oh yeah thanks john it's been a real pleasure talking to you too That was the first Writers on Film podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed that. It was a great conversation with Tom Schoen. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please go out and buy his books. They're fantastic. Thanks also to Elliot Atkins for the music and Ali Harwood, who's provided us with some artwork to publicize the site. You can follow me at Dr. John T on Twitter, and you can visit my website, johnbleasdale.com, for more information about the podcast and my writings in general. If you have any feedback or suggestions as well, it would be great to hear from you. <laughs> this is all a bit of an experiment and a learning process for me, I must admit, but uh, I certainly have enjoyed it so far and I hope you have too. Uh, I hope you'll join us next week for the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.